The subject of Perik Hafalaf are the laws of Mukta, and the first Mishnah talks about different situations in which one carries a Mukta item as well as a non-Mukta item. Now, as we have explained earlier on in the Masechta, something which is not considered a utensil and it's not considered food, that is known as Mukta Machmas Gufay, something which is Mukta because of itself, meaning it itself is not considered to be a utensil or a useful item, and it itself doesn't really have a use which can be used for itself. For example, a stone or even money, although money can be used to buy things, it doesn't have a use in and of itself. The coin itself cannot really be used, and it is considered muktza. Another thing we've learned earlier on in the Masechta is that something which is a base, something which is holding a muktza item, also becomes muktza, and that is known as bosses ladavar ha'asur. We're now going to see a couple of exceptions to the rule of bosses ladavar ha'asur. And the first one is Neutal Odomus Benoi Vahoevin Biyadei. One is allowed to carry his child whilst a stone is in the hand of the child. Now, of course, we're discussing Erosh's Hayachid, a private domain in which it is permitted to carry. So the only problem here is going to be a Mukta problem. But the carrying itself is not a problem. And the Gemara explains that this is only permitted if the son is extremely close to his father and if the father doesn't pick him up now, even with the stone in his hand. There's a chance that the child could even become ill because he's so desperate for his father to hold him and he doesn't want to let go of the stone. So in that case, Rabban were lenient and said that one can carry his son even though his son is carrying a mukta item. Second exception, the Chalkola one is allowed to carry a basket of fruit even if there is also a stone in the basket. This is known as a basis ledor ha'asar uledor ha'mutar a base, something which is holding a mukta item as well as a non-mukta item. So the stone is mukta, but the fruit are not mukta. And the Gemara explains that even this is not so simple. If there's a way for you to get rid of the stone and only carry the fruit in the basket, then you're not allowed to carry the stone in the basket. So if, for example, the fruit were dry and you could easily just tip over the basket and let everything fall out and then just put back all of the dry fruit, or even hold onto the dry fruit and tip over the basket so that the stone falls out. So it's only in a case where the fruit are wet, or you're not able to move it to the side of the basket and just tip over the stone. And if you tip over the whole thing, then the fruit might get ruined. Only in that case are you allowed to carry the basket with the mukta item together with the non-mukta items. On a similar note, the mission discusses truma. Truma is the gift which goes to kanim, and only kanim are allowed to eat it. And the halach is that if the truma becomes tomei, then the kohen is no longer able to eat it and he has to burn it. Now, of course, since it's forbidden to burn things on Shabbos, Tommy Truma is mukta on Shabbos. So the mission discusses a case where one has a basket of both Tommy Truma and Tahar Truma. So again, a mukta item and a non-mukta item. And the mission says, One is allowed to move the basket containing both Tommy Truma and Tahar Truma, or if it contains Tommy Truma vimachulin, and chulin, which is regular produce which anybody is allowed to eat, and certainly it is not considered mukta. And once again, the Gemara explains that this is not always permitted. Only if it's not possible for you to carry the non-mukta truma by itself, only then is it permitted. For example, if the tome truma is at the top of the basket, so you're not able to just remove the tohar truma by itself and carry that by itself, and you're also not able to tip over the basket because we're talking about, let's say, wet fruit, which would get ruined if you tip it over. So in that scenario, you would be able to carry this container and we also see another important rule which comes out of this case, and that is that even when one is allowed to carry a bosses ledover ha'osser or ledover ha'mutter, you're only able to do so if the non-mukta item is considered more significant or valuable than the mukta item.
So that's why in this case, certainly you would be able to do it if there is no way to do it by itself, since Tahar Truma is considered more valuable than Tomei Truma. Now the last law of this mission does not concern Mukta, but it concerns Nala Halacha with regards to Truma. And the Halacha is that if somebody has Truma and it gets mixed with Chulin, Chulin is food which can be eaten by anybody, Truma is food which can only be eaten by a Kohen. Now if there is less than a hundred times more Chulin than Truma in the mixture, then Majabon on the entire mixture is considered to be Truma, and a non-Kohen would be forbidden to eat that. However, if there are at least a hundred times more Chulin units than Truma units, then the Truma is considered to be nullified. However, it is still forbidden to eat from that mixture if you're not a Kohen, until you separate the amount of Truma which was in the mixture, and do give that to a Kohen. Now as we have seen a couple of examples throughout the Masechta, it is forbidden to fix something on Shabbos, and included in that is making something permissible on Shabbos. And because of that, the Chachon hold that it is forbidden to separate this one unit of truma, since that is like fixing the mixture, it's like fixing the food by making it permissible. However, Behuda argues, Behuda and Behuda says, when it's even allowed to take up, to remove truma from a meduma, from a mixture of truma and chulen, if there is at least a hundred times more chulin than truma. And the reason for Yehuda is that, although in general when one separates truma, he does so physically, he actually takes the produce and separates it from the rest of the pile. When it comes to a mixture of truma and chulin, says Yehuda, it's enough that you just have in mind which part of the produce you're going to designate as truma. So you can actually designate that part as truma in your mind, and then the rest of it becomes permitted. That being the case, it definitely does not look like you're fixing the produce, and therefore says Rabbi Yehuda, you're even allowed to do so physically. You can actually go and physically separate a unit of the mixture as truma, because that is not actually a necessary part of fixing the produce, of making it permissible. Mr. Base, we're now going to see another exception to the law of Bosis Ledover HaOser, that something holding a mukta item is considered mukta itself, and that is if the mukta item was not placed there intentionally, rather let's say somebody put it there during the week, and he forgot it there, he didn't intend to use the non-mukta item as a base to hold this item, rather he just left it there. In such a case, the non-mukta item does not become a Bosis Ledover HaOser, it does not become mukta itself, and because of that, if one needs to move the non-mukta item, even if that will cause the mukta item to be moved indirectly, it is nevertheless permitted as long as the reason why he's moving that non-mukta item is for the sake of the non-mukta item. He can't move the non-mukta item only for the sake of indirectly moving the mukta item. So for example, however shall Pierre Chovis, if a stone is on the mouth of a barrel, at the opening of the barrel, so one cannot drink the wine, and he can't pour out the wine without moving the stone. Matal Tzidor, he is allowed to tilt the barrel on its side, Vihinefeles, so that the stone will fall down. And of course here he's doing it for the sake of the barrel itself, for the sake of accessing the wine, not for the sake of the Mukta stone. Now the mission implies that one is not allowed to lift up the barrel and then um, indirectly tilt over the barrel so that the stone falls down. Rather, you're only allowed to tilt the barrel to the side. However, if you need to lift it up in order to remove the stone, so then you're allowed to do so. For example, if this barrel of wine was among lots of other barrels of wine, so if you just tilt it now, either there's no space to tilt it, or if you tilt it, the stone might hit another barrel and make a hole in the other barrel. And so in that case, Magbil, you're allowed to lift up the entire barrel, take it away from where the rest of the barrels are, and then Umatal Tzidovihinofeles, tilt it on the side so that the stone falls down. Alright, similar case, Mois al Hakar. If there's money on a pillow, 
and the person wants to use the pillow, then no one is allowed to shake the pillow so that the money falls down. But once again, he's not allowed to lift up the pillow if that is not entirely necessary. Now, once again, we're discussing a case where the money was forgotten on the pillow, because if it was placed there intentionally, then the pillow becomes a bosses for Ha'asur, which means that it itself becomes Mukta. So you're able to shake it about, because that's like shaking about the money itself. You're only allowed to do this if the base is not considered a bosses for Ha'asur. Now, the Gemara explains that if one needs the space where the pillow is or where the barrels are, then even if it is a bosses for Ha'asur, one is still allowed to move the mukta items, because as we learned earlier on in the Masechta, even totally mukta things are allowed to be moved with tzoyach if you need the space where those things are right now. Since we're discussing a pillow, the Mishnah continues with another halach which applies to that, although it does not have anything to do with mukta directly. If there was a dirty spot on the pillow, and we're talking about a pillow which is made out of a material which absorbs water, so it's some sort of cloth, says the Mishnah, one is allowed to clean it with a material which is used for cleaning things, or for scrubbing things, but one is not allowed to add water to it, since adding water to the cloth is like washing it, and it's forbidden to wash clothes and this as well on Shabbos. However, if a pillow is made out of leather, which does not absorb water, then one is allowed to add water until the spot of dirt is no longer and it has been removed, but once again over here one would not be able to scrub the water in, because that would once again be considered like washing. Mishnah Gimel, one of the severe types of mukta is known as neilod, which literally means something which is born on Shabbos, and it refers to something which changes its state on Shabbos. So it could be that before Shabbos it didn't exist, such as an egg which has hatched on Shabbos itself, or it could be that it did exist before Shabbos came in, but in a different state to what it is in now. Begins the Mishnah, One is allowed to lift up from the table once they've finished eating, bones and shells. And we're discussing specifically bones which are fit for dogs to eat, and shells which are still fit for other animals to eat. And therefore, even though a human cannot eat them anymore, they are not considered mukta, since they are useful in terms of the animals eating them. However, you need to take the entire tabletop, the top of the table which they would eat from. In those days, this wasn't necessarily attached to the legs of the table, and it could be it was on top of the actual table. But be as it may, Hillel say that you were not allowed to move the bones and the shells themselves. Rather, you must carry them in an indirect way via another utensil. And the reason for Hillel is because they consider the bones and the shells to be noilod. Because it's true that the bones existed before Shabbos came in, but before Shabbos came in, it was, let's say, a piece of a chicken, and the shells were considered to be a fruit or a nut. Now they have totally changed their state. Now they're no longer fit for human beings. They're now considered animal food. Instead of calling it a fruit or a nut, you're now calling it a shell. So it's totally changed, and therefore it's considered noilad, which is a form of mukta. Now, it should be noted that the Gemara says that the opinions of Beishamah and Beis Hillel over here should actually be switched so that Beis Hillel is more lenient than Beishamah, which is almost always the case. Now, the next law of the Mishnah is very similar to the previous one, but only according to the opinion that it's not considered to be Nolod. So, according to the more lenient opinion, which, as we said, is actually Beis Hillel. Since at the end of the day, the bones and the shells did exist before Shabbos, they haven't really changed state. 
and so they're not considered noilod, and so too Mavrim Shulchan Perurim Kazayas, one is allowed to move from the table small pieces of bread, even if they are less than the size of an olive. So it's sort of considered insignificant now for human beings, and now it's really just crumbs of bread, which one is going to feed to the animals. The Serchalafunim, the Serchaladoshim, the outer covering of chickpeas or of lentils, because all of these things we just mentioned are still fit for animal food and are therefore not considered mukta, and their state is still considered to be at least quite similar to the state which they were in before Shabbos came in, and therefore they are not considered noilod according to this opinion of the Mishnah. The parak ends off by discussing a sponge, and before we reach what its relevance is to mukta, and whether it's mukta or not, the Mishnah first tells us that a sfeig, a sponge, im if it has a leather handle, the mekanchim boy, one is allowed to clean things with it, of course, you can't intentionally squeeze the sponge. That's forbidden on Shabbos. However, since it has a leather handle, one is actually able to clean something without squeezing the sponge. Now, even though it's quite likely that he will end up squeezing the sponge a bit while he's doing so, that comes under the category of a dorsh inumiskavein, a side result of something which he does, which he doesn't intend for that result to come about. So here, all he's intending for is to clean the surface, to clean an item. He's not interested in squeezing the water out, and therefore even if it does happen, at least according to this Mishnah, he is exempt, vim lav. But if it does not have a leather handle, then it's impossible to clean something without squeezing the sponge. And so in that case, even according to our Mishnah, one is not allowed to clean anything with a sponge, because part of the cleaning is squeezing it. So it's not considered as if he's not trying to squeeze it. And many explain that the Chachom aren't actually arguing. They are adding on that whether it does have a leather handle or not, the sponge can be taken and moved on Shabbos and it is not considered to be mukta because we're discussing a dry sponge, and therefore even if it does not have a leather handle, so you can't use it as an actual sponge, it is still considered to be a useful utensil, and as such it is not considered to be mukta. And finally, the Enumakabal Tumar, a sponge cannot become Tomei, this is again a non-related halacha to Shabbos. The Mishnah just tells us that one, even if it touches something which is Tomei, the sponge will not become Tomei, because only things made of certain materials, and when certain conditions are fulfilled, only those things can become Tomei, and the sponge does not fulfill those conditions, and as such, even if it does touch something which is Tomei, the sponge will remain pure. A few prokham ago we learnt about what one can do in case of a fire on Shabbos, and we learnt that one is only allowed to save a maximum of three meals worth from his house, but no more, in case in his rush to save as much as he can, he might come to put out the fire. On a similar note, this Mishnah tells us that Chavis Shanishbra, a barrel of wine which breaks, and the wine starts dropping out, one is allowed to save from there, that wine enough for three meals. Since he needs to have three meals on Shabbos, and he has wine with all of them, he's allowed to save the amount of wine which he would have in three meals. However, he is not allowed to save any more than that, in case in his rush to save all of it, he might forget and mistakenly try and fix the barrel, which of course is forbidden on Shabbos. And just like we saw in the Perek which discussed the fire, the he can say to other people, once he's collected his three meals worth of wine, instead of making it all go to waste, he can tell others, come and save the wine for you, take wine for yourselves, and as we learnt over there, when it comes to Motzei Shabbos, they should really give it back to him, because that is the decent thing to do. As long as he does not use a sponge to soak up the wine, 
He can collect the wine with utensils. He can scoop it out with bowls, for example. But to place a sponge in the wine for it to absorb the wine, and then to take the sponge to a container so that all the wine drops out of the sponge, that is forbidden because it's very likely that he might come to actually squeeze the sponge out instead of just leaving it there for all the wine to drop out of the sponge. Continues the Mishnah, in Sapiris, one is not allowed to squeeze out fruit for their juices. This is considered a tolda of mephoric, separating something from something else. So here you're squeezing the fruit, mashkin, to take out and separate the juices from the fruit. And the Gemara explains that this is forbidden mid only when it comes to grapes and olives, because only these two fruit are designated primarily for squeezing. Grapes are generally squeezed into wine, and olives are generally squeezed into, into oil. And so this is the regular use of those fruit, and therefore it's forbidden. Mijabonon, it's forbidden to squeeze even other fruit. Now what happens if vim yotsumi atzmon? If the juices of these fruit came out by themselves, without you squeezing them? So as the Gemara explains, when it comes to grapes and olives, everybody agrees that it's forbidden to benefit from those juices, from the wine or from the oil. It's forbidden to benefit from them until Shabbos goes out. Because if you take that oil or that wine and start drinking it, we're afraid that you'll come to squeeze the rest of the olives and grapes there, which would be forbidden mid Arisa. On the other hand, when it comes to fruit which are never really squeezed, so if some juice comes out of it by itself, then you are allowed to benefit from it on Shabbos, because we're not concerned that you're going to end up squeezing the fruit or the rest of the fruit which are there, because you never really squeeze, squeeze that fruit anyway. The debate in our Mishnah concerns fruits such as pomegranates or berries, which are sometimes squeezed for their juices. But the Mishnah says if that juice came out by itself, then asurin, According to the Tanakama, it is forbidden, because since occasionally those things are squeezed, we are afraid that you might come to squeeze the rest of the fruit. However, Behuda says, If it's set aside for eating, so if you originally had the intention to eat those pomegranates, so even if some juice drips out of them, you set them aside to eat, so we're not concerned that you're going to squeeze out the rest of the pomegranates. And therefore, the juice which comes out of it is permitted to benefit from on Shabbos. It's only vim lamashkin, it's only if you designated the pomegranates for squeezing out their juices already. So then we're concerned that you'll come to squeeze out the rest, then therefore hayetzimehen osur, the juice which comes out of them by itself, is forbidden midyabonon. Alright, ends off the Mishnah, chalis devash, honeycombs, shariskom erev Shabbos, which one crushed before Shabbos came in. He sort of did one big crush of the entire honeycomb. And as a result, on Shabbos, the yotzimi atzman, the honey came out of the honeycomb by itself because it was crushed before. Says Mishnah Asur, and it's still forbidden to benefit from that honey on Shabbos, even though you didn't actually squeeze it on Shabbos, because we're concerned that you might come to crush it a bit more to speed up the process of the honey coming out of the honeycomb. On the other hand, Rabbi Loza Mater, Rabbi permits one to benefit from that honey, because since in general one doesn't crush it more than that original one crush, we're not concerned that you'll come to crush it more on Shabbos, and therefore you can benefit from that honey even on that Shabbos.